to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwinniger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a lovely five-star review, and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight and analysis and practical application you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. You know, before we get started, Matt, I should probably tell you that uh, we're going to have to end the podcast. What? Bing, Bing told me we could no longer be friends. Well, I mean, it's got to be right. And uh, the AI, AI is always right. Yeah. It's AI. It's AI. What if we actually yes. ended it right there? <laughs> just, just uploaded <laughs> just that. five-minute podcast. <laughs> or actually, it's like, what, 30 seconds? <laughs> that was episode 100, guys. Thanks for Thanks for joining. All right. So that, of course, brings us to our first article, which is ChatGPT is ingesting corporate secrets. Dun, dun, I am dun. shocked. Shocked, I tell you. I, I'm sure it's not by design either because they didn't think of that ahead of time. <laughs> but we got this from uh, Bruce Schneier's blog. And, and this came out from uh, someone inside Amazon, I guess, leaking Slack and uh, email from uh, discussions going on inside Amazon. So an Amazon lawyer, I'm not sure if she actually knows how to shoot a bow or not, but she warned workers not to feed ChatGPT internal company data because Amazon staffers and other tech workers throughout the overall industry have been using ChatGPT as a coding assistant. I think we talked about this, uh, first talked about ChatGPT. Chat coding assistants, yeah, I've been really impressed. Yeah, I've heard that's actually the best thing it does. But this came out because Amazon workers were actually asking Amazon for guidance. You know, can we use it on work devices? Were they allowed to use it at all? Everyone knows you <laughs> ask for forgiveness after the fact. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always those people who have a guilty conscience beforehand and ruin it for everybody else. And basically asking for overall guidance on AI tools in general as well. And the uh, the lawyer's response we we have a privacy policy and a confidential confidentiality policy that's good enough has anybody read those policies well i'm sure they they read them when they came on board because you probably had yeah. to read them and and uh, sign off saying you read them and maybe even annually to have them read those check that box and to quote what was in the the lawyers communicate to the organization. This is important because your inputs may be used as training data for further iteration of ChatGPT. And we wouldn't want this, its outbound output to include or resemble confidential information. We've already seen instances where its output closely matches existing material. That's interesting because I thought that ChatGPT was not using the inputs to train the current model. I thought that there wasn't their big disclaimer saying that chat GPT results may be incorrect because they were all from 2021 or earlier. That sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. But OpenAI's terms of service require that users agree that the company, which is OpenAI, can use all input and output generated by the users of chat GPT and Supposedly, they at least they claim that they remove all PII from the data. So that seems to indicate that they're doing something with what you what you what you put into it. Yeah, that's fair. I just I just wasn't sure. I, I like we talked about before. You can do you can chain queries. So obviously, it's taking in what you're giving it as a query. But I didn't think they were using that to kind of train the source data. So that's a so I'm just thinking that if they found something in ChatGPT that resembled Amazon, Amazon 
existing material, that means that it was probably ingested as part of the training model to me. Or the people who wrote it used ChatGPT to create the existing material. So it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> it's turtles all the way down. Yeah. HR is all soulless, uh, soulless robots. Well, that is true. But I think that the lawyer saying that, oh, well, our existing policy covers that. I think that's, a, that's short-sighted. I think this is, a, this situation doesn't quite, I, while I can understand that, that then say, well, you have a confidentiality agreement that says you can't, you know, discuss internal stuff with, with external parties or whatever without approval. I think this is a little bit different situation that there's enough nuance here that it should have its own separate policy. Yeah. And this is only going to grow. Because that should discuss, you know, how how or what confident, confidential information you can share with an external AI. And especially considering that this is now, I mean, Microsoft, the open AI company, $10 billion, and the company's only valued at 30. I mean, only 30 billion, but that's one third of the company. So Microsoft practically owns this and they're a direct competitor with Amazon for AI. Yeah. But, you know, even, even though the lawyer said, well, our current policy is good enough for this, to quote the article, Amazon has put in place internal guardrails for ChatGPT. For example, when employees use a work device to go to the ChatGPT website, a warning message pops up that says, you're about to visit a third-party service that may be approved for use by Amazon security, or I'm sorry, may not be approved for use by Amazon security. Uh, and this was the... The an inside employee took a screenshot of this pop-up warning and sent that to whoever wrote the article. But that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, is it approved or is it not approved? You know, we it's it's not as if they don't know that they're going to chat GPT. So it's that's kind of mealy mouth to say, well, it may not be approved instead of outright blocking it or telling the telling the employee you may not use the service. Yeah, this allows them to kind of go back after the fact and change their mind and be like, well, you shouldn't have used it. You're, you're, you're going to be fired now or you're going to be disciplined. And yeah, that's bad. Yeah. But the thing is, they say, well, it may not be approved. And then they allow them to bypass it and just acknowledge it. I mean, like I've worked at companies before where they'll do that with the proxy, where when it meets a, you know, like adult themes or weapons or something that they don't want you to look at on work time, but the proxies are not always correct. Mm -hmm. Oh, for, for errors in categorization. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Well, like I said, this is different because they know exactly what, where they're going. It, it's, it, there's no wiggle room here really, but I can see why they're being coy about it though. Supposedly Amazon employees have said that using the, using chat GPT has led to a 10x increase in production, in which case any prevention from using this is totally ludicrous and stupid to be done by Amazon because who doesn't want a 10x increase in productivity? So interestingly enough, my first thought was then, well, obviously they need to get a paid version that promises not to use their data to train models. But then I realized actually this already exists. A GitHub Sidekick or GitHub, there's a, there's a, GitHub has an AI model that is trained specifically in coding and already does this. How well does it do it though? I've heard it does it pretty well. I was considering getting a personal subscription because apparently it's not too expensive. Because and maybe this would lead Amazon towards that. Because if they're saying, well, if 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 ChatGPT oh, is giving us a 10x, mm -hmm. maybe you know the GitHub could get a 10x product, you know, productivity boost as well. 
and we wouldn't have all these uh, concerns about data loss. Yeah. So GitHub is called Copilot for business. It is $19 per user per month. And even if it doesn't, even if it maybe, let's say it's not as good as ChatGPT and it's only a 5X in productivity, $240 per user per month or per year seems reasonable for that. Yeah, it's not terrible as far as licenses go, because you're not talking about the entire company. No. You know, if you're oh. just talking about your developers. Although in a lot of these tech companies, they do have a lot of developers, but still they're big enough that, you know, a thousand developers at 240, 10,000 developers at 200 is 2.4 million. Like they can afford that. And they'll probably get volume discounts too. Well, if you take that and say, well, you got a 10x increase in productivity, then the cost should be offset, you yeah. would think. Yeah, you got have fewer developers. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm sorry. I'm, so we used I... to have 10,000, now we have 8,000. Uh -huh. uh, so now we can afford to use the AI to make up for uh, the 9,000 we let go. I was thinking like I had an MBA. I don't know what came over me. You're soulless, Matt. Absolutely <laughs> soulless. Yeah. But the reason we're even talking about this is if you're not blocking ChatGPT, your employees are using it. I guarantee it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and that being said, you can use it in ways that are kind of generic. Even if you're not using the paid version, you just have to be careful not to copy your... Because a lot of the stuff that developers do is generic. Like they need generic algorithms to sort things or generic algorithms to, you know, print stuff to the screen or render stuff in a browser. That type of stuff is probably what ChatGPT is best at because lots of other people have done it. If nobody else has ever written that code, ChatGPT can't help you. So like the truly the truly unique stuff, just don't put it in the box. Don't, don't submit it to ChatGPT. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a professional developer, but anytime I've been looking for the solution to a problem, I've never cop pasted code into a query. Then, hey, you know, this is my yeah. problem. I've posted air codes, you know, cutting out unique things out of the air and searching for that, but I've never actually, you know, pasted entire snippets of code saying, hey, what's the problem with this? But I have seen that in Stack Overflow for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're going to allow it or, well, I mean, the whole thing is what's the cost benefit to your organization using this? So you need to take a look at that before you decide on what you're going to do. But if you are going to allow it, I think you need to come up with a policy on how, you know, what your expectations are around it. You need to monitor the policy to ensure that, you know, people are following it. What? Uh, Crazy. And even if once you decide that, you know, you're going to allow it and you have this policy in place and everything, you also need to come up with a way to determine whether it's actually being, you're getting the expected 10x return or whatever that you think you're going to get out of it as well. Because it could be you're making some assumptions here, which don't pan out in the end. And if you don't monitor for that, then it could end up being worse, making you worse off. Yeah. So and something else to think about is, is uh, if recalling back to the terms of service for ChatGPT, that if your employees are giving all this stuff to that third party and the third party has the license agreement says, oh, whatever you give us is ours now, you have to consider that that is, you, that is no longer your code or, you know, maybe this, I mean, this is really a lawyer thing. You're going to have to bring the lawyers in on because I don't know if that's enforceable or not because an employee that posts some code in there, they can't really speak for the company and saying they're going to accept the terms of service and all my code that I post in there is now belongs to open AI or whatever. So you probably should definitely get your Amazon lawyers involved. No, you're right. Amazonian that... lawyers. I don't, you're right. <laughs> Because employers sign something, almost every company requires you to sign something saying that anything you create on company time and company equipment belongs to the company. 
Right. But if you create it and then post it in this chat, in chat GPT, who also has an agreement says, oh, now that you've posted that, that's ours. Uh, then, you know, it's no longer proprietary or owned by your company. That's what I'm saying. Huh. I was just thinking of the fact that like, if the, if the employee didn't own it, can they give it away? Um, well, I mean, that's what they're talking about with the confidentiality agreement. Essentially, with yeah. the, initially, the lawyer is saying, well, if you do that, then you're breaking the confidentiality agreement, which you shouldn't be doing. But if you come up with a policy and you can use this, this tool, you're opening the door for them to say, hey, well, you said I could do it. So you've got two policies that are contradicting each other. But I think as this, you know, the more this this comes out, hopefully OpenAI will start adapting and maybe come up with a subscription model or whatever, like you were talking about with the GitHub. Yeah. So ChatGPT did introduce a $20 a month subscription, but it came out like three weeks ago and I haven't seen additional notes on it. It doesn't say whether you own your own stuff or not. I think that was just a deal with volume. Yeah. It was like general access to ChatGPT, faster response times, priority access. Right. It doesn't say anything about owning your own stuff. Because the last time I tried to use it, it said, oh, we're too busy. Yeah, I've noticed that. So here's a weird thing. I was trying to do a demo with some of my coworkers and ChatGPT is inaccessible during the workday because so many people are using it. I can almost always access it Saturday night, you know, Wednesday night, but during like eight to five, it's offline for me because it's too Well, busy. you got, you know how many developers are at Amazon? <laughs> No All right. All right. Our next uh, next article is custom models are AI's killer app from my favorite person, Daniel Meisler. So for as a good summary, he actually gives a really nice quote that this is this, consume your whole business or your whole life experience, every text, every Slack, every journal entry, every blog post, everything you've said or written publicly, all your logs, all your documentation. So in the same vein as the previous article, ChatGPT is for everyone incorporates everything you can get his hands on. But what companies actually want and what individuals actually want is they don't necessarily want a broad general model that incorporates everything. They want a AI that can look at your life or your business and then tell you what to do next or where to, where to, where to focus your attention. Yeah. I think he's, he, he, I think he's thinking too big too soon. I think he needs to start off smaller. Well, he can be visionary, <laughs> but. Unless you start smaller, you're not going to get to the visionary place where he wants to be, I think. So it would be better to build smaller, more concentrated models instead. So first you would build a custom model for something very specific. You know, for instance, take a model and build it around your marketing campaign and customer, feed, customer feedback. And then give it everything that from your call center, all the recording, the metrics from the call center. And then... You could merge the outputs from those two things so that they can be mutually supportive. So, you know, maybe what the AI learns from the marketing campaign and customer feedback, you could use to feed into your call center so that your call center people can maybe convert the customers to purchase more products or feel better about the products they have and turn them into influencers is probably not the right term, but endorsers <laughs> of your product when they talk to other people about it even if they're not going to purchase something additional from your company. Please don't make me an influencer. Please don't make me an influencer. <laughs> Matt, you have a podcast. You're already an influencer. No, but I don't have a TikTok, so. <laughs> oh, well, then you're not even a person. <laughs> so I think that your point is moderately correct. But I think the problem is, is that 
his argument is that chat GPT is so useful right now. Like it already is apparently a 10 times improvement in coding for Amazon (laughs) that you don't necessarily have to do it this way. Now, there are probably certain places where you do, for example, like marketing campaigns. You can go out and look at everybody else's marketing campaigns and maybe if you can get your hands on metrics and then take yours and compare it and be like, how does ours compare to other companies, you know, that are our competitors? Uh, but I could see something like call center people because there's no generally released information about call center stuff. So that one would probably be really hard to get a large general model around. Well, you're not talking about a large general model, though. I'm talking about a specific dedicated well, model though. But what he's talking about is he's talking about taking a large general model and then and then adding a layer over the top of it to customize it down to you. I see what you're saying. Yeah, cuz cuz you're using you're using the larger general model to do most of the heavy lifting. But then again, cuz the larger general model that ingests everything on the internet's not going to give you information that is specifically helpful to you. Then you need to do like a second layer of what is important to me, what is important to my company, and then combine the two. Mm, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm but still well, a little bit okay. skeptical. I mean, that's fair. Because again, like the the large general model, it has it. Well, you can you can you can. You, you, this is your point that you wrote down. And I'm stealing it. The large general model has garbage in it. It's a problem with ChatGPT. It just predicts what other people have said. So if a large percentage of people have said something wrong, then ChatGPT will also say something wrong. Although that does make me wonder, like what percentage of incorrect information is enough to poison the the results? Like let's say 60% of people, or let's say 90% of people are online and 10% are wrong. Does ChatGPT go with, I assume it goes with what the preponderance of people say. Well, since people have already found relatively large errors in the output from ChatGPT, chat gpt i i can't say definitively whether it does its way in that way or not so i'm not sure but before you ask these kind of questions i think you need to spend a lot of time really formulating what that question is going to be to ensure you get out what you're really looking for yeah yeah so i can actually see rather than rather than using like chat gpt as a model I think you're right that we have to build narrower models that are maybe still quite large, like a marketing model that's filled with, because marketing campaigns by definition have to be somewhat public because everybody sees them. And then you might be able to pull some numbers about how successful it is based on like how successful the company is. Like the campaign was released in Q3, 2022, and then in Q4, 2022, their profits went up. And it's obviously not going to be 100% related, but I bet you could tease out some relationships there and see what types of campaigns and then build like a, a marketing AI that will, you know, then ingest your own marketing plan and tell you like, this has a fairly good chance of increasing your, you know, revenue. So because right now the they can't point. tell that. <laughs> I remember, I remember hearing about this that like, Right now, they cannot measure impact of marketing. Companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing and have no idea how much impact it's having. Right. But I think, if, you know, if you throw AI at that, though, are they, you still have to have the data points for AI to be able to, to yeah. figure that out, though. Well, that's, that's why I was trying to look, look at things like the, the revenue from the company and stuff like that. Because publicly traded companies do have to release their 
you know, SEC filings, et cetera. And I, I get that it's not a one-to-one correlation. It's not a direct correlation, but you might be able to tease out some relationship there. Because a successful marketing campaign leads to more people buying your stuff, which should hopefully increase your revenue. Yeah. Well, that sounds simplistic enough. You'd think people would be able to figure that out without the, <laughs> without the complexity of AI. Ah, I thought it was brilliant. Damn it. No. I, I don't know. We'll see. I think what I'd like to see is, you know, company building these for everyday people around their particular industries in order to help their customers, you know, do better, do things better and smarter. For example, is to have Napa Auto Parts build a Neuroscope AI for home mechanics. So, you know, if, if home mechanic wants to do something, they talk to the AI about it and AI, of course, is going to say, hey, well, you should you need this this part from the Na- your local local Napa store in order to do this thing. Or you tell the AI, hey, I want to do this, and it builds a parts list for you. And of course, it order it can order it automatically from Napa and have it shipped to your house or something like that. And maybe even come up with a list of instructional videos in order for your project that you're going to build or that you're going to work on or whatever. And when you run into trouble with AI, you talk to the AI about the, what the problem is. Like, oh, well, most likely... You, you know, you failed to torque this nut down to the proper weight or I'm not sure yeah. to the proper torque or something like that. Yeah. No, I could, I could totally see this because then in addition, if you have an inventory of which tools and parts you have at home, it can tell you which ones you're missing, which ones you need to buy. No more of this crap where you start a project and realize you forgot a tool and have to go make five runs to Home Depot. Right. Uh, <laughs> and it could also price that out by by connecting to Lowe's, Home Depot, or Amazon's mm-hmm. AI, uh, or API, I'm sorry, and saying, oh, well, your project that you want to do is actually $5,000. You're like, mm, yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll put that out for a couple well, of years. And, and also, like the troubleshooting part you mentioned, with AI and a, and a Google search, it should be able to figure out where problems commonly occur and even point out ahead of time, like, this next mm, step is mm-hmm. where 90% of people run into an issue. You know, take extra care here. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you could say you're, the common error when someone is doing this this thing is to do this thing. But So don't do that. Yeah. Everybody twists it the wrong direction. Right. Yeah, exactly. Most people think this is a clockwise nut or it's a <laughs> counterclockwise nut, you know, something like that. Yeah, there were a couple other ones. I like that one. There were a couple other ones he suggested. He suggested being able to ask the AI, is this a good life partner? Uh, this one would be really interesting, actually, since people so often let their emotions cloud their judgment and everybody, you know, when they fall in love, they think that the other person is perfect, rose colored glasses, et cetera, et cetera. So what would be interesting here? I was thinking about this in the two models. He talked about a general model and a specific model. So the general model here would be what combinations make a good marriage or partnership, you know, looking at all the research has ever been done on marriage and partnerships. So this would actually go not only for marriage, but, you know, working with somebody in the company, et cetera, et cetera. And then combine that against a specific model of who am I, what are my features, and what would be a good complement to me? And does this other person have them? Uh, I'm, I'm foreseeing like AI marriage bots that parents will consult to figure out if their children are a good match. Oh, yeah. That's funny. Like, you know, it, it would totally change the breakout conversation. You know, it, 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 it's not me. It's you, according to my AI. <laughs> it's, it's my AI. My AI told me we should break up. And the the problem here is that a lot of those inputs would have to be self-reported. Like the AI would have to ask you, what do you like? What do you do? And look at your social media and your posts. 
But the problem is all of that is completely fake and made up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, just point it at your Instagram and it will get an accurate picture of your life. Right? <laughs> the second one that he proposed was, quote, align my security budget initiatives to reduce the most real world risk based on knowing our entire environment, end quote. So the general model here is the insurance data we've been talking about, like actual incident response data on how big was the breach, how many records were lost, how much did it cost versus what tools were available, you know, what was the funding for the incident response department. Obviously, some of that can't be quantified. You know, you may have a wizard working there or you may have a bunch of people that can't find their butt with both hands. You know, actually, it just made me think of something about having the these the IR companies and the insurance companies develop a questionnaire that they specifically designed to feed the AI model. Mm. Yeah, yeah. How big is your IR team? What is how many years' experience do they have total? What is your funding? Like all those little variables. Well, which EDR do you have? How long yeah, did it yeah, take you yeah. to turn it on? What are your settings for this, this, and this? You yeah. know. Very specific things like that to feed into the model that it can then use over time. Because imagine if you took all the incidents that Verizon uses for its breach report every year and mm -hmm. had a very specific AI planned ahead of time checklist of items that were going to be fed into data points to that AI model for all those breaches. I think it'd be yeah. that could be pretty helpful. Yeah. And then and then what you're talking about. So the general model would be all of those from all the breaches and all the companies that the insurance companies can get it from. And then you would compare that to your specific model, which would be your local configurations, products used, staffing, funding, breach and attack simulation data, and SIM alert data. And yeah. I think, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, this is another thing that I think this is where the insurance company should be building these AIs to do exactly yeah. what, we're just talk what we're just talking about right mm -hmm. now. I was thinking it'd be nice to have one that was built that all the insurance companies subscribed to and yeah. you know all the insurance yeah, no companies need to build that data in but i think then you're i mean that would be great but i think the challenge you would run into there is then each individual insurance company would then lose their competitive advantage in having that um, dedicated ai to tell their customers hey this is the right thing to do yeah, but but the AI would be so much better because it'd have so much more information. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. I'm saying yeah. that's absolutely would be better. I'm just yeah. saying that you. I think there's a challenge there in convincing the insurance companies to go buy into that model instead of having their own dedicated AI for that kind of purpose. I guess if you, it, it might be one of those things where if you build it, they will come. So if someone builds one that's great, and the insurance companies might realize, well, they can't compete with that greatness, so they're not going to try to build their own. <laughs> they're going to subscribe to your service where you're providing this AI model that they can feed a questionnaire, which you provide them and say, hey, you need to get these data elements or these data points to feed into this, to the thing. And then you pay a subscription to be able to collect that same data points for your customer and then feed that then the AI and get the answer out that you're going to give to your customer or something like that. Yeah, I think that makes a little more sense than my thought, because my thought was this would come from the breach and attack simulation companies first as part of their value proposition. Uh, right now, they tell you where you're failing, but then being able to help you prioritize where to remediate first. But I think you're right. I think the insurance companies are the ones more likely to have the data to feed the AI model. So if you don't have that data to feed the AI model, you can't feed the AI model. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, for the IR companies, you're going to have two two different pictures, right? You're going to have the, the pre-breach and the post-breach, and they may not be from the same IR company, whereas the insurance company should have both of those pictures, right? The, the pre and the post. And if you can marry those together, then maybe the post doesn't happen because you've done the work on the pre or whatever. That makes sense. I don't oh. know. 
Meisler's just overall creepy with that kind of question about, you know, is this a good life partner? And then his next one. <laughs> and the last the, one. Yeah. Plan my perfect year because I'm a mindless drone, please. Yeah. I, you know what, though? That would be good. That'd be a good exercise. I would be actually interested in an AI looking over my life. Although the problem is it's going to look over my life and it's going to be like, your perfect life is to sit on your ass and watch TV for 20 hours a day and sleep four hours a day and eat 4,000 calories in sugar. Yeah. So why does this matter? It doesn't right now, but I like the, I like them. I like him looking forward to trying to predict what's in the future. And it also, I don't know how many people, yeah, I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to call it the vendor. A vendor recently at a conference where the vendor was talking about, you know, just imagine if, you know, you weren't vulnerable to, you weren't vulnerable to exploits because your vulnerabilities patched themselves and your, your, your analysts didn't have to worry about the minor stuff and just lots of just imagine stuff like that, that I was just sitting there being like, oh, this is all I need to be is just imagine. So we're imagining. We're imagining together. <laughs> Get out your crayons. Our next article come to comes to us from Crypto Slate, and it is titled Representative Tan Elmer introduces anti CBDC bill. Uh, so, what's a CBDC, David? <laughs> well, let me tell you, Matt. CBDC is the central bank digital currency. So, on the twenty second of February, he introduced this bill to prevent the Federal Reserve from providing a CBDC a CBDC to individual retailers. And the bill would likely prevent the U.S. Federal Reserve from issuing a CBDC to any person hmm. or, or from, inter, inter, I'm sorry, issuing it at all. Now, this comes on the heel of a January report from the government saying, we need to research this concept of CBDCs. Because right now, the Federal Reserve has no definitive or definite plan to create one. And so just last month, they said, we need to research this. And already, the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston and New York are starting their research. So they aren't waiting around to, to look into this. As soon as they said, well, we need to look into it, they're like, we're on it. But Emmer wrote on his Twitter account, quote, any digital version of the dollar must uphold in our American values, privacy, individual sovereignty, and free market competitiveness. Anything less opens the door to the development of a dangerous surveillance tool. Yeah. Anything less than the best is a felony. <laughs> well, anything, anything less than this mythology oh, that gosh. is American values yeah. uh, is a surveillance tool. Yeah, the American values of following the crowd, buying too much crap until your wallet, until your cards are overdrawn and have to be cut up, and what eating until you're eating until you can't move. Right. Modern yeah. American values. But the bill prohibits the Fed from issuing a currency directly to anybody, and requires the Federal Reserve to make its CBDC projects transparent through consultation with the Federal Reserve banks every quarter. And this is supported by nine other Republicans, which of course makes this, you know, what they're calling, they're calling it because there's no Democrats have signed off onto it. So they're saying, well, this is a partisan bill because the Republicans hate cryptocurrency. That's silly. This should not be, this but should really not be partisan at all. Should, should hate the CBDC. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you there. As a, as a card carrying leftist, I actually don't have a card, but <laughs> it's I in your other pants. It's in my other pants. But this whole concept is absolutely terrible. And I'm actually, I actually have a quote here from Christopher J. Waller, who is a member of the federal, member of the board of governors of the Federal Reserve System. And he, this is not from this speech, but he gave an entire speech on this, around this concept of, of why this is not a great idea. 
on the 5th of August in 2021 at the American Enterprise Institute. But to quote Waller, I see, I'm sorry, I can see why China would do it. If they want to monitor every one of your transactions, you could do that with a central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. If you want to impose negative interest rates, you could do that with a, with a central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. And if you want to directly tax customer accounts, you could do that with a central bank digital currency. You can't do that with Venmo. I get why China would be interested, but why would the American people be for that? And that pretty much outlines, and this is from a guy who worked at the Federal Reserve. So he, he understands exactly the, the system we're talking about here. And this is, if this is coming from somebody on the inside, that just further explains how horrible this is. But if this were to come to pass, there would be no cash. You just have the, the central bank digital currency. And basically, that would give the government complete control over you. Because if they control their money, if they have complete control of your money, they completely control you because you can't do anything without them. They, can, they would control your bank account, which you will have to have. Because you won't be, you won't have any money outside of the digital system. They will decide what you get paid. They will decide what you buy. Because if they decide, well, you can't purchase a gun, then you, with your your digital currency, they can just simply prevent that from that transaction from taking place. They can decide if you can save money because they can put an expiration date on the money and it says, oh, well, you earned this 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 digital dollar in January. You must spend it by June. Otherwise, it's going to expire like a... Like those stupid gift cards? Like an, audible, to like an oh. audible token or credit that you that you buy on a monthly basis. And if you know anything about... It's Keynesians hate the concept of saving. They think saving is a detriment or is is, is detrimental to the over-economy, the economy at large. Yeah. So it's un, it, there's no doubt in my mind that they would do this idea of expiring money. So you were not able to save at all. You would have to buy stocks with it, or you'd have to buy, you know, a whole bunch of booze or cigarettes, to, you know, because they hold their value over time. I mean, I set my money on fire too, so. Everybody does. <laughs> you might as well. I, I mean, mean, with, the, with 6% inflation, a dollar today is only going to be worth 96, 94 cents this time next year. So, but that's why this is important is because the average everyday person is going to get screwed if this comes to pass. And what you can do about it is anything you can in order to prevent this from coming to pass. And that's the rant for this episode. All right. For our last uh, last one, this one's pretty short. Chip company loses $250 million after ransomware hits supply chain. So Applied Materials, who supplies semiconductor manufacturers with equipment, services, and software, is expected to have a $250 million impact in second quarter sales. This is because a supplier had a ransomware attack and was unable to deliver to them, so now they are unable to deliver to their customers. The article suggests that this is MKS Instrument Incorporated, possibly. No, so, so passing the failure on to you. I mean, the customer always ends up paying for everything anyways, right? Yep. So supply chains and ransomware have been big topics of discussion for a while, and this week they came together in a beautiful expression of how this can totally screw with your company's profits. And as we all know, Companies love their profits, and especially with chip shortages as we're seeing them. This is a real bad time to run into this issue. Yeah, I mean, as it stands right now, I'm seeing three to six month lead times on equipment. Mm -mm. So you add this on top of this, I don't even know where this goes for these people that are that are in this in this bucket here. 
MKS said they cannot process orders or ship products in the vacuum solutions and photonic solutions divisions. Uh, the rest of the article focuses mainly on ransomware prevention, but I think the more interesting point here is the downstream effects. We've talked about ransomware prevention a thousand times. If you don't know how to prevent ransomware at this point in time, you're going to get ransomed real soon if you haven't already. So the, the question here, I think, is there's a bunch of questions that you have to ask yourself as a, as a security engineer or working in the risk and compliance part of your company. Like, which suppliers are you completely reliant on? If a supplier stopped producing tomorrow, whether it was ransomware or bankruptcy, would that take you out too? Do you have a backup supplier? Uh, how long would it take them to spin up a line to manufacture what you need if nobody else makes what you require, if it's completely custom? Do you require custom manufacturing or are you the parts you use all off the shelf? So this one is kind of interesting to me because industries tend towards consolidation and monopoly. I mean, what's best for a company is to have a monopoly on selling a product, but have many, many competing suppliers to drive down the price of the input so they can make the maximum amount of money. Well, I mean, industry doesn't really tend towards consolidation and monopoly. I mean, in the free market, it doesn't anyway, because once, <laughs> yeah. which of course we don't, we aren't in, we're in, we're in a, we're in a, what they call a mixed economy or the managed market, however you want to put it. But in, in an actual free market, it doesn't drive towards monopoly, it drives towards competition. Because when one company starts making huge profits, that incentivizes people to get into that business and then compete with that company and then drive down their profits until they come to parity where the customers ultimately win out by getting the least expensive product at the highest quality or at the price point they're looking for. Yeah, in an ideal um, world. Yeah, yeah, I could go on with what what happens in an ideal world. The 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 idea that here that you said do you have backup sources? You know, this could be a problem if you can't get something like a backup contract. Because what happens when you have a primary provider of of a resource or a supply? They have an issue, so you go to your backup and you're like, hey, we need this thing. And they're like, oh, well, you got to get at the back of the line because I have all these other customers' orders I have to fill and you're going to be waiting three months to get the supply anyway because I have no contractual obligation to, to drop what I'm doing right now and provide you with this thing that you need because your primary supplier is out of business. So that, I wonder if, you know, something like this, if certain, it might make sense for certain aspects of an organization's business to start stockpiling some critical supplies rather than just relying on just-in-time inventory, which obviously this is where all this is in, is is a problem. Because yeah. if you had a stockpile and your company was off, your supplier was offline for a couple of months or something, you might be able to have that supply to tide you over in the meantime. But this this is the real challenge, and and where supply chain issues with supply supply chain are so challenging for organizations now is that virtually everyone is going to this just-in-time inventory. Makes you more money. That, well. Well, it, it is a very, does lower costs considerably, but it's also, you can see a huge downside in any kind of hiccup in the supply chain for JIT could, could, could wreck a whole bunch of businesses because of just that one, one little bump in it. Yep. So I know this is more in the risk sector as opposed to like cool new tech, but it seems pretty important to me. So what you should do about it is answer the questions and determine if you need to push the business towards finding new suppliers. Or answer or, or answering the question that David brought up, which is, sure, it's cheaper to do just in time, but where's the balancing point between risk and just in time? You know, should you have two weeks worth of supplies a month? I don't know. I'm sure there's somebody that can do the math and figure out where the where the ideal inflection point is there. You could ask your AI. 
Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.